Well, this year we've been going on this uh, journey to really get to understand what it means to be a servant leader. We've been looking specifically through the life of Moses at, at what it looks like to be a servant leader. Not to be a leader according to this world's eyes, but to be a leader according to how God has created us to be. One who serves, one who is humble, one who, who lives sacrificially for others. And, and so as we've gone through the life of Moses and, and looked at various places in his life, we've, we've seen how he has been a servant leader, how he's grown and become a servant leader, but then how he's lived out that servant leadership in the places that God's called him to serve. We've looked over the summer at the life of Jesus and how Jesus is a servant leader. He's really the servant leader, right? And so we've got a chance to look through those moments in his life where he's exhibited this, this, this lifestyle of servant leadership. By the way, just an encouragement and a reminder that that idea of servant leadership is not meant for a, a select few that, that are at the, the top of the food chain in the life of a church or a ministry. It's meant for every one of God's children. Those who are disciples of Christ are called to live this life of servant leadership, to lead others through a life of service and servanthood. And so we've continued on this journey of learning what it means to be a servant leader. Last week, Pastor Dave kind of invited us into the, the story in the life of Israel where they, where they craft this golden calf. And we learned about the dangers and the pervasiveness of idols, not just then in the life of Israel, but also in our lives even today. And so as we get started, as we kind of branch into the prayer that, that Moses prays coming through that experience, I wonder if you'll just give me a few moments to give us somewhat of a, a bit of a State of the Union address in terms of the role of sin in the life of Israel. You see, Israel spent many years enslaved to Egyptians. They, they lived a life that, that they cried out to be rescued from. Sometimes not having any food at all, or, or at least the, the very worst of food. Worked their fingers to the bones, exhausted, really not finding any joy in the life they lived as slaves to the Egyptians. And so God hears their cry and sends them a rescuer. But, but in rescuing them out of Egypt, it doesn't take Israel long to begin to complain. It's not long that they're in the wilderness before the Egyptians are pursuing them. God has rescued them out of, Israel, or out of Egypt, and they begin to complain. God, have you called us out here just to, to see us destroyed by our captors? Again, God rescues them. So they keep going in the wilderness. They cross the Red Sea. They're journeying in. And guess what? Not, not too long later, they complain, right? They, they forget what God has done, and they begin to complain that they're hungry, they're tired. That God, he responds faithfully. He provides manna. He, he provides water from the rock. He provides for his people. Israel complains. God saves. God rescues. God redeems. Are you noticing a bit of a, a pattern? In, in our narrative, at the point that we're at in the life of Israel, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God, where God gives him the, 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 the Ten Commandments, the law. And you know what happens? I mean, you could probably guess by now because I'm being repetitive here, but Israel complains. Right? While, while Moses is at the top of the mountain, they get impatient. They get tired of, uh, uh, of, of waiting, and, and so they complain. Listen to their whining uh, in, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. This is as they kind of approach Aaron to, to make them a, a, a false god, an idol, a, a, as Pastor Dave says, a small g god in the 
form of a golden calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Man, how quickly they forget. How quickly they forget who it is that led them up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. How quickly they forget how God protected them from their captors and guarded them from being overtaken when the Egyptians came after them. How quickly they forget who has been with them in the wilderness and provided for them. How quickly they have forgotten God. God's been steadfast and faithful to them, but they've been stubborn and stiff-necked. Have you noticed the pattern? God's faithful. God's people complain and whine. And yet God is gracious to rescue them. Listen to what God says when Israel worships their golden calf. Just a few verses later in, in Exodus chapter 32. It says in verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you even kind of sense if we can pick this sense up from God's own words, his, his frustration, his anger. <laughs> Moses, you go down. These are your people. These are my, you know, like, it's almost like, he, like it sounds like God wants to create some, some separation, which I know he doesn't, but, but, but you're getting a sense of the anger which we will see in God in just a moment or, uh, or so. The thing is, Israel is, is not just in this one circumstance, but their, their character, their nature is to quickly turn aside. And so God recognizes that Israel has quickly turned aside from the way which he has commanded them. By the way, if you're ever in a situation where someone asks you, what is sin? This is a great passage to take them back to. It's not, it's not uh, Merriam's Webster's Dictionary version of sin, but it is an explanation, an articulation of what sin is. It is a quickly turning aside from the ways that God has commanded us. Now, you, you, you put that into a grid, and almost anything that, it, that you could define sin by that. You can actually point to things happening in people's lives and say, that is you listening more to your, yourself, your own desires, your own will, turning aside from the way that you know God has commanded you to go. Turning away from God's ways and making our own way is exactly sin. It's a, it's a way that ultimately leads to death. So before we fault Israel for this, I wonder if we could consider our own lives. Like Israel, we're quick to forget God. Like Israel, we, we forget what he has done and what he has promised to do. Time and time again in scriptures, we're told to remember. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because we get busy. We, we get consumed with our own needs. We get consumed with the things going on in our lives. We, we have our own desires, which we focus in on. We get impatient like the Israelites, who, who couldn't wait 40 days for Moses up on the mountain. We, too, get impatient and, and kind of want to hurry God along ahead of his own time schedule, Right? I like how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 14. 
He says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they've, been, they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Do we get that? I mean, I get it. When we read through this narrative, we want to think, oh, man, Israel, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why would you? Look, look what God has done for you. How could you forget that? Why are you getting so impatient? Just wait a little bit longer. God, Moses is about to come down, and he's got all of what God has said to be shared with you. Don't, don't be so hasty. When we read through the narrative, it's natural to think like that. But, but at the same time, we have to remember that if we were there in Israel's shoes, we would do the same exact thing. We would all be quick to turn aside. Our hearts, like Israel's, we need constant tuning, constant work to remember who God is, what he has done, what he has promised to do, and what he will do. At night, we, we sing a song to our kids when they're going to bed. I think it's, it, it was a habit that we first started when, um, when our oldest was a newborn. But we sing uh, the child's the, 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 the song, Jesus Loves You, This I Know, right? I won't sing it, I promise. I may, actually, because when I say it, it's just like, it's so habitual, it sometimes comes out as, as singing. But uh, in, the, in, in the song, the second line is, for the Bible tells me so. Now, this is true. For our Christian faith, that's the foundation of who we are. That we turn to the word of God, how God has already revealed himself to his people, to his creation. We look to his word and we say, this is who God is. I believe it because this is the timeless, eternal truth. It is God speaking, revealing, illuminating who he is to his creation. It's the foundation of what we believe. But we sing it every night because it's so easy to forget, too, right? In, in the, the fast-paced lives we live, the, the, the things we pay attention to, it's so easy to forget that, that, that Jesus loves us as one example of a truth, and we quickly turn aside to seek out other ways that we feel loved in this world. Our hearts are, are, are somewhat like the piano over here. The piano has 88 keys. Yeah, <laughs> got the, the head nod from Margie. That's good. 88 keys. It has, uh, it, it has um, pedals to, to dampen and lengthen notes. I did research it a little bit, just, just so you know, but I could still be wrong because who knows? Wikipedia and Google can be wrong from time to time. Uh, but it has these, these pedals to, to lengthen and dampen notes. It has strings. It has a, a hammer, as I understand. The hammer is the thing that comes down the string and hits it and creates a note. Now, now, no matter what, no matter how well each part of the piano is made, unless that piano is kept in tune, those parts will, will ring out the wrong note, will make the wrong sound. Our human hearts are, are much like this piano that need regular reminders, regular tuning to, to keep us centered in God, to, 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 to keep us from wandering off the path. I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I love it because one of the, some of the, the lyrics, actually all the lyrics, but some of the lyrics really ring true for me because I recognize it true in my life. The, 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 the song says, uh, um, or there's a line in the song that says, uh, our hearts are prone to wander, leave the God I love above. I mean, I, I hate to admit it, but I could see that in my own life, that, that there's this almost this 
this, this uh, posture where I'm prone to wander. I hate that about, about myself. I, I hate that I'm prone to wander from the God I love, the God who has been so faithful and so loving to me, and yet he regularly has to, to tune my heart, to pay attention to him, to, to lean into who he is. I kind of wonder, why is this? God, why, why do we need this regular tuning? Why do we need to, to, to be reminded of who you are? How can this be universally true for the Israelites and as well for us today? Well, because it is sin. It's, it, it's universal across all human beings. I know that the tendency is to want to say, well, not everyone's bad. There's good in all of us. But because we do a good thing does not make us a good person. What actually universally characterizes human beings is this proneness to wander from the one who created us, the one who loves us, the one who, who has a design for our lives. Like Paul so clearly says in Romans that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as the psalmist says, no one is good, no, not one. We are all a, a stiff-necked people. We are all the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, rejecting God's ways, rejecting his commandments. Listen to what Moses says in Exodus 32, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Some translations use the word obstinate, and some use, use uh, more of a, a word of like stubborn. But either way, it, this, this stiff-necked symbolism depicts an, a, an animal, like an, an oxen, who, or an ox, who, who, who's rejecting the yoke being put on its shoulders, rejecting the, the tool that is meant to guide them and direct them, choosing to go its own way rather than the way of its master. This summer we looked at Matthew 11 and, and specifically to the life of Jesus. And, and in Matthew 11, Jesus offers his followers a yoke. A yoke that, 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 that offers us rest as we learn to become like him. Jesus offers that yoke because I think he knows that we oftentimes want to choose our own way. We say yes to certain things about God, but saying a, a full 100% yes to Jesus is not so easy for us. And so Jesus invites us into this place of, of obedience to him that we might become more like him and not throw off the very yoke that is loving and rest-filled. Without fail, Israel would prove itself time and time again to be a, like a stubborn animal that refused to obey the loving and generous master that offers them guidance. They quickly turn aside from God's way. When a, a disciple of Jesus named Stephen stood before uh, the council in the New Testament, and he's recounting the history of Israel, he looks back uh, on, on Israel uh, as a people, and, and this is the way he describes Israel's magnetic pull to reject God's ways, to refuse who God is. Listen to what he says in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That, that, that Holy Spirit, the, 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 the helper, the, the, com, the companion that God has given us to, to dwell within us, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, 
to challenge us, to encourage us, to, to go before the Father on our behalf, that very Holy Spirit is one whom the Israelites resisted. They were, they were like that ox that refuses the yoke on his shoulder. They were shaking it off, saying, no, we want to go our way rather than your way. See, being stiff-necked is not just for the people of Israel in the wilderness. It's a universal, cross-generational issue. It's true for us all. So when I call you stiff-necked this morning, when I, when I think of us as being stiff-necked, please don't be offended because it's not personal to you. It's universal to us all. It's true for those who are apart from God, but it's true for those who are being transformed in the image of, of Jesus Christ as well. Now, why, why am I sharing all this? Why am I sharing all this as we come into Exodus chapter 32, verses 11 through 14? Well, one reason is it gives us a background for our, our passage this morning. It helps us understand that when Moses went before God uh, on behalf of the Israelites, he does so because apart from someone stepping in and, and mediating between God and his people, they would have no hope. Because of their sin, their stubbornness, their stiff-necked personality or character. Well, another reason that I want to share this with you this morning, another reason why I give us this background is that it reveals the need for servant leaders like Moses. It shows us that when we say that servant leaders are live out prayer-filled lives, it's not one more thing for you to do. It's so that we might understand how needed it is for people to go before God on behalf of others in prayer. In a moment of great need, Israel came face to face with their own destruction because of the consequences of their sin. They were this close to being wiped off the map and for God looking to fulfill his promise through Moses. Left to themselves in their stubborn, selfish, and sinful ways, God would have destroyed the people of Israel. But instead, Moses steps in. He, he, he mediates in the situation on behalf of Israel between God and his people. And not only does he save Israel from their destruction, but he saves them to a future of God's promised blessings. So what we learn from Moses this morning is that Servant leaders, the ones who we've been looking to become like, they stand in the gap for others. Specifically, they stand in the gap for others through prayer. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 32, we're going to jump into verses 11 through 14 together. In Exodus chapter 32, we can read these words. But Moses implored the Lord his God. And said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? See, God, uh, God just a moment ago had said, you know, go down, go down from here, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, they've turned, they've quickly turned aside. Moses steps in, and he, he says, God, why does your wrath burn so hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? See, I think the most important thing for us to learn this morning is that the work we can do as servant leaders is a prayer-filled life. 
Not prayer that remains in our places of, uh, of quiet uh, devotion, like our, our 15, 20, 30 minutes in the morning. But prayer that, that flows out of that space into our day and guides our actions as leaders in the lives of others. See, Moses actually implores the Lord in, play, in prayer. He meets with God in prayer in such a way as if you're pouring cool water on a hot fire. We're getting into the fall where we're going to have campfires, maybe uh, on a cool fall evening. And, and, and if you've ever had to pour cold water on a hot fire uh, to put the fire out at the end of the night, you, you see how quickly it cools off. It, it hisses, it steams, it kind of puts the, the remaining fire out. Almost like stepping into a cool shower on the hottest day of the year, which is kind of hard to imagine this morning. But you get that sense when you step into that shower and your whole body begins to cool down. This is what Moses is doing as he stands before God. This is what he does as he steps into the gap on behalf of Israel. The Hebrew used here literally means to make sweet or pleasant the face of. In other words, he's looking to calmly cool the anger of God. Like a mother who, who, who might stroke the face or the hair of her child as she puts it to sleep at night. He, he's looking to calm and settle God through his, through his time in prayer with the Lord. Take a look at uh, what Moses says to the Lord in verses 12, well, 11 through 13 here. Let me read it again. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent uh, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will, for, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. What I hope we'll understand here is that Moses steps in in his own faith. When Israel showed a lack of faith in God, Israel, uh, Moses puts forth his own faith before God on behalf of Israel and, and, and implores the Lord, God, turn aside from your anger. Remember the things you have done. See, Moses actually offers three expressions of his own faith to calm the anger of God. He, he, he exalts God for his power, right? He, he, he points to the fact that it was God who brought out of the land of Egypt these people with great power and with a mighty hand. He says, no, it wasn't, God, it wasn't me. You know that. I know that. Israel may have forgotten, but it wasn't me who led them out of, out of Israel. It, my faith is that it was you, God, with your power and your mighty hand that led Israel out of Egypt. Moses' faith is what he is leaning back on right now, not Israel's. Israel's has quickly forgotten and quickly turned aside. So he exalts God for his power. He also calls to mind God's goodness. He kind of, he says, God, I know you to be a good God. I know that you didn't lead Israel out of Egypt to lead them here into the wilderness, to let them die, to, 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 to give some impression that, your, that your, your power had an evil intent to it. I believe that you are good. Israel may have forgotten, Israel may have quickly turned aside, but I believe that you were good, 
And then Moses calls to memory God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. See, Moses believes in God's power. He believes in God's goodness. He believes that God will be faithful to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't that God couldn't remember what he had said or done. It wasn't that God needed Moses to say, hey, hey, remind me again, why did I bring these people out of Israel? Which, you know, as human beings, we could understand that, but that's not true for God. God doesn't need to be reminded about why he does things or what he's done or what he will do. See, Moses' appeal through prayer was one where he put forth his own faith. He, he, as a mediator, as, as an intercessor, he stepped forward in his own faith and put that before God rather than the lack of faith that Israel had. I kind of liken this to um, those moments when I've seen Tara to be somewhat like a, a mama bear for her kids. For those of you who don't know what a mama bear looks like, it's that moment where a mother, almost like there's this, this anger, this, this rage, this power that kind of comes flowing up within a, a mother when she sees her children in danger or being treated unfairly or unjustly. And, uh, and so this is true, I think, in those moments where I've seen Tara exhibit that mama bear personality, which is hard to, I, I know it's kind of hard to imagine for Tara, but it's true, she does does get, let, me, let me illustrate. Our, our, uh, our boys play flag football, and a couple weeks ago, our younger son was, was playing flag football against a team that I think they thought they were playing tackle football and not flag football. In flag football, you don't tackle, you pull flags off a belt. In tackle football, obviously, it's self-explanatory. You actually tackle people. Well, the team that my younger son, Max, was playing against, uh, I think they thought it was tackle football, and this was bothering Tara. She, she uh, a couple times... Um, turned to me and shared with me her own thoughts and feelings on how the way this game was going. And, uh, and, and so I knew that if I didn't step in and talk to her in that moment, I, I was going to find a, 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 my wife, my beautiful, gentle, patient wife, running on the field and tackling a six-year-old herself. So, <laughs> so I found that I had to go and talk. I had to, I had to kind of address this. I said, Tara, you know, you're, you're way stronger than that kid. It's not even fair. I mean, you can't do that to him. Or I said, Tara, you're not the type of mom who fights a six-year-old boy. Think of, how, how's that going to make your, your, your son feel? What kind of example will you be for the other kids on the field? Or, or my favorite, Tara, we can't afford bail money today. <laughs> anyway, I didn't actually say that last one to her. But by the time I was done talking with Tara, you know, her, her anger had subsided. Why? Were, were, my, were my reasons more convincing? I don't think so. I, I think it's because of, of the fact that I came before Tara. She knew I loved her. She knew I had her very best in mind. She knew that, that we had a, a, a trustworthy relationship. She, she knew that, that as I came before her, I wanted the very best for her. I wanted the very best outcome for how this was going to happen. And, and seeing her get in trouble for, for beating up on a six-year-old boy on the, on the football field was not going to be her very best. And so I think she, tr she could trust that, right? In a similar way, Moses expresses his faith in God's righteousness his, his goodness and God's faithfulness. He doesn't offer some magical incantation. There, there's no secret way that he prayed that, that convinced God of, of what was right and what was wrong. He doesn't have to remind God of, of who God is or, or any of that. He faithfully appeals to who he knows God is. He says, God, this is who you are. Destroying your people, that's not who you are. I don't believe that that's who you are. I, 
I believe that this is who you are. He appeals to who God is. He holds up who God is against the current situation and appeals to God's goodness and faithfulness as the God he knows he is. And as a result, God's anger cooled like a, a, a bucket of cold water on a hot fire or a cool shower on a hot day. See, what matters most in this situation is not what is prayed or, or how it's prayed, but who is praying. Uh, this is what James is talking about in his letter in the New Testament when he says that the, the fervent prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. See, our, our prayers are powerful. Our, our prayer is effective. The, the work that we do in, in our prayer closets is extremely important to the role we play as servant leaders in this world. I can't teach you the, the, a secret prayer that Moses prayed. I can't tell you what exactly he said to God on that mountainside. I, 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 can't, I can't tell you that that's gonna, if you pray that exactly, that that's going to magically make things work out the way that you would hope that they would. There's no secret prayer to pray in leading others to, and making everything work out. See, I think what God is teaching us here, what he's teaching his servant leaders, what he's exposing to us through the life of Moses right now is that it isn't how to pray, but, but who is praying. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus teaches on prayer in Matthew 6, yeah, he gives us a, a model to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But if you notice the verses that lead up to that, they all confront the character of the one who's praying. He challenges us not to be like the hypocrites and those who are falsely religious and falsely righteous. He's more concerned about the character of the one praying, the faith of the one praying, than he is about how we pray. He wants to make sure we get the character right before he shares with us the how-to. It matters more that we're praying from the heart of Jesus than from our old, sinful, selfish selves that are, that are fading away as we become conformed to the image of Jesus, as we become transformed to look more and more like Christ. And so Moses appeals to God, and his anger is cooled. Listen to what happens next in our passage this morning. In verse 14 we read, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. See, as a result of Moses going before God, mediating on behalf of, of Israel, and meeting with God in prayer, spending that most important time talking with God, appealing to him, imploring him, the Lord relented. He changed. Now, theologically, we believe that God does not change. He's the same uh, we, this is a passage of reference to Jesus, but Jesus is the Son of God. He's a part of the Trinity. He is God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, right? I mean, God doesn't change. But here we see an example of how the course of action that God takes does change. And how prayer is effective in, in impacting the course of action that God takes in the lives of the people that he has created. God relents from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Hebrew language that Moses uses gives a sense of, of stopping a particular action. And by doing that, and this is important, stopping that particular action is seen as a gracious act. 
that by, by God, God's not just stopping his course of action, but, it, but, but that relenting carries with it this gracious sense that, that, that the people who receive that action or who receive God stopping that action, they, they don't deserve it, but God does it anyway. He stops from the course of action he was going to take. He was right and just in pursuing the course of action he would have taken. That's what they deserved. They deserve death, right? And Paul says in Romans, the, the, for the, the, the consequence of sin is death. That's what they deserve. But instead, God graciously ceases from that course of action to destroy them. See, this is not the only time that God has relented from the course of action that he had planned to take. I mean, if we look back at Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, we're, we're told Jonah was, was a prophet and, and God sent him to Nineveh, this place, a, a city filled with wicked people, filled with people who would long ago turn quickly aside from the ways that God had commanded them. And, and, he, and God tells Jonah, go to these people and tell them that unless they repent of their wicked ways, I will destroy them. And so Jonah does that, long story short. I mean, we know that he doesn't just go and do it. He's, there's a little bit of a, a, a side trip that Jonah needs to make in the belly of a great fish. But he does eventually proclaim God's words to the people of Nineveh. And, and, and the Ninevites, they respond in repentance. Listen to what we read in, in, in jo- Jonah chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. See, because Jonah, as a servant leader, stepped into the gap on behalf of the Ninevites, God relented of his anger and his intention to destroy them. That's one example of another time where God has relented of his anger. If I may just take another moment... Let me give you one more example of a way that God has has relented of his anger, how God has changed his mind about a course of action graciously in a way that's undeserved to God's people. Let's look at the life of Jesus. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says this. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus stepped into the gap. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He stepped into that gap so that when God looks on us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He he doesn't see our stubbornness. He doesn't see our our stiff-necked personalities or character. He sees the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus stepped in, bore the weight of our sin on the cross, died the death that we deserved, and because of that, God relented from his anger against us, graciously, lovingly, giving us new life. This is the the greatest act of grace that we can find in the Bible. That through Jesus' mediation, we become the righteousness of God. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he's declaring that that God's anger against sin is finished in this cross. This is where that work is completed. This is where the mediation between God and his people is completed in Jesus' death on the cross. And when he raises again, rises from the grave a few days later, 
He, he invites us into that new life, a life that says, I have a, a future of a, a blessing upon you that I have promised and I will be faithful to fulfill for those who are in Christ. The ultimate servant leader is Jesus. He mediates God's anger against sin by bearing the weight of our sin on the cross. And because this ultimate servant leader, Jesus, because of his work and his actions, God relents of the punishment that we deserve and instead graciously gives us this new life. So we got to say, I don't believe that God changes. But praise God that he'll change his mind and his course of action. Praise God because we can now stand here in Christ and live with hope for this new life that he's given us and live with confidence that he no longer looks upon us and sees our sinful selves, our stiff-necked, stubborn ways, but he sees our redeemed selves who are in Christ, in Christ alone. Like Moses, like Jonah, and like Jesus, we too are servant leaders this morning. We too are servant leaders who step up and stand in the gap for others. We come before the Lord in prayer out of obedience to God and out of love for them. We appeal to God's goodness, to his faithfulness. We, we, we stand before God not in our own strength but in our own faith. We appeal to who we know and believe God to be. And we ask him to do that miraculous and gracious work in the lives of others. See, prayer, <clears throat> prayer is powerful. And, and prayer is effective. We see it in the life of Israel as Moses goes before the Lord in prayer and, and pleads on their behalf for God to relent of his anger, which he does. Because Moses has gone before the Lord in faith and in prayer. So this morning, I want to challenge you to stand in the gap for others in your life. There, there may be one person. There may be three people. You may be thinking of many members in your family. But the challenge is that, that your role as a child of God is not just to sit back and enjoy the, the, the blessing of being a child of God. It's to go and stand in the gap for others. To go before the Lord in prayer on their behalf. And you know what? Here's, here's the confidence we have. I, you may be sitting here saying, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. But you know what? I don't think that it really matters, like, the specific way we pray. I, I don't think it matters if we're driving down the road and we're praying out loud or if, we're, if we've got 20 minutes at the start of the day and we're praying quietly in, in our room. I'm not sure that that's what matters most. What matters most is the character of the one who's praying. Are you praying faith-filled prayers? Are you praying, are you praying from the, the place of your own faith, of who you know God to be? Are you allowing your faith to grow in such a way that it fuels your prayer life with the Lord? Are you coming to know who he is and what he has done and what he's promised to do? What we learn from Moses is that it matters more who is praying. And so I want to encourage us to know that prayer is not meant to be an action you take. It's meant to be a lifestyle you live. That if it matters most who is praying, 
then it means that this is a lifestyle you live throughout your day with God. So that prayer is not this moment that you, you spend or an action you take, but it, it, it flows into every moment of your day, every thought you have. This life centered in Christ, a, a prayer-filled life. I want to close with this story from this book by Richard Foster. It's a book called Prayer, self-titled or, or titled appropriately for the topic we're talking about today. But the reason why I want to read this story is it gives us a picture of what prayer is. And prayer is not meant to be something that we do to accomplish what, something we want. A prayer is a place where we experience the richness of relationship with God. That's why it matters who is praying, not what is being prayed or how it's being prayed. It's an articulation of our relationship with our Heavenly Father, the fruit of which is powerful and effective in the lives of others. Let me, let me read this, uh, this story that, that Richard Foster accounts uh, told to him by a friend. He says, One day a friend of mine was walking through a shopping mall with his two-year-old son. The child was in a particularly cantankerous mood. He was fussing and fuming. The frustrated father tried everything to quiet his son, but nothing seemed to help. The child simply would not obey. Then, under some special inspiration, the father scooped up his son and, holding him close to his chest, began singing an impromptu love song. None of the words rhymed. He sang off-key, and yet, as best he could, his, this father began sharing his heart. I love you, he sang. I'm so glad you're my boy. You make me happy. I like the way you laugh. On the way, uh, on the way they went from one store to the next. Quietly, the father continued singing off-key and making, words, making up words that did not rhyme. The child relaxed and became still, listening to this strange and wonderful song. Finally, they finished shopping and went to the car. And as the father opened the door and prepared to buckle his son into the car seat, the child lifted his head and said simply, Sing it to me again, Daddy. Sing it to me again. Richard Foster goes on to say, Prayer is a little like that. With simplicity of heart, we allow ourselves to be gathered up into the arms of the Father and let him sing his love song over us. Now, I would say this, that, that prayer is that, that two-way street of conversation where, where we implore the Lord, God, change your mind, relent of your anger. But it's also a place where God speaks his truth and his love into our lives as well. And so... This morning, I want to encourage you that that servant leaders, we live a prayer-filled life, not because of what it accomplishes, but because of who we're in relationship and prayer with. It's a place to be loved. It's a place to love God and to love others. More often than not, God's mind doesn't change, but ours does. So I think prayer is powerful, and it's an effective place that servant leaders step into the gap and live in for the sake of others and out of love and obedience to God. So may we all learn to stand in that gap, to stand in the gap for others through prayer and enjoy being held by our Heavenly Father. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that, uh, Lord, you, you, you are concerned for who it is that comes before you in prayer. You are concerned that as servant leaders we are we're serving you, but we're also serving others by standing in the gap and going before you on their behalf. It's amazing to think that, Lord, our prayer, our prayer life, our relationship with you can, can, can cause you to relent of your course of action, to, to cause you to relent of your anger, 
and to be gracious to your people. Lord, bless us with a rich and growing relationship with Jesus that gives us wisdom and discernment in, in the relationships we have with others, that we would know how to pray for them, but, but most importantly, Lord, we'd know how to go before you on their behalf. We'd know how to appeal to you on behalf of those we love, who we desire to see in a growing and a, a faith-filled relationship with you. Lord, may we be as a church, may we, may we be that church that exists to lead others back to you through Jesus Christ. And may that work begin in our prayer, prayer lives as we lift others up before you in faith, knowing that you are a gracious and good and faithful God to do all that you have promised to do. So, Lord, we, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray your blessing on this time of worship. May your word be fruitful in transforming us from the inside out, we pray. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen.